0: There's no organ called the mental. This is your brain's health. It's an actual organ and it happens to be the most important organ in the body. And so this is very real. It's not made up. When people are presenting with symptoms of PTSD, they're not going bonkers. They're not crazy. This is very concrete. It's well described. And fortunately, there are strategies for healing.
1: Hello, and welcome to Doc Working, The Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Jill Farmer, one of the co-hosts of the podcast and lead coach at Doc Working. And as always, we're brought to you by Doc Working Thrive, where we provide coaching tools to help you live your best life, as well as peer support by other physicians. Check us out at docworking.com and take the burnout quiz today. You guys are in for a treat. A really fascinating conversation by somebody who's been on the forefront of something that I think many physicians are going to be wanting to be on the forefront of as we move forward. Dr. Sadie Elisio is a primary care physician in the Boston VA healthcare system, a clinical instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, an adjunct instructor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. She is also a nationally recognized expert in the field of trauma-informed care, or TIC, an organizational framework for supporting survivors of various forms of trauma. Her work has created an award-winning curriculum on trauma-informed physician examination, and it's now being taught at medical schools and healthcare institutions across the country. Sadie, thank you so much for being with us to have a conversation about trauma-informed care for physicians and how they can incorporate it into their healing work with patients. Of course. It's absolutely a
0: joy to be here today. Thank you so much.
1: So take us back to the beginning. When did you first become aware that trauma-informed care was something that you needed to be thinking about as a practicing physician in the VA medical system?
0: So back now, eight years ago is when I completed my training, I decided to get a job at the VA. So I work for the Veterans Administration. I'm currently a PCP in the Boston VA healthcare system. And as I was examining my trauma-exposed veteran patients, I realized that there were things I was doing unintentionally that were making my patients visibly uncomfortable. I remember distinctly an episode where I swung my stethoscope off my neck, as I always do, to start the cardiac exam, and the patient jumped. I remember approaching someone to start the thyroid exam, and they stammered back. And I thought, my goodness, what am I doing to harm patients? Because first, do no harm is what we've all decided to do. So I started adjusting my speech adjusting the way I stood, where I stood, how I behaved in the room, simply in an effort to set patients at ease. I had no other motive in mind. I wanted people to feel cared for and safe. I started teaching those strategies to medical students. And one day a student asked me, "Um, Dr. Alessio, can you tell me more about your trauma-informed techniques? And I honestly thought she made that up on the spot. I was like, what are you talking about? And she told me that, no, this is really a well-established framework for supporting people who've experienced trauma. And it can be applied universally as a means of building resilience. And from that point on, I was completely hooked. I swear I was in my office for a month doing nothing but reading whatever was published online about trauma-informed care. And I developed a formal framework for a trauma-informed physical exam. And in collaboration with the medical students, we were able to implement that as standard curriculum for first years. At the time, I happened to be course leader for doctoring at Brown. And so that's what we did. We studied it, we published it, won an award for it, and now it's being taught at medical schools across the country. So that's how this happened. It was really inspired by veteran patients and medical students.
1: So I think it can make sense for a lot of people listening that somebody who had been in combat, a veteran, would have signs of PTSD in that experience. And so it makes sense that sudden movements and things like that might elicit a response. But this application is not just for veterans or combat veterans, is it?
0: No, it's not. And I think one thing that's unfortunate about how We use the word trauma is that traditionally, when we hear that word, we think of perhaps a gunshot wound or someone being stabbed. We think about the trauma bay in the ER. We don't think of it more expansively as psychological trauma, sexual trauma, transgenerational trauma in terms of racism and slavery and war. And we also, unfortunately, think of trauma as it relates to our patients, like it's something that only they undergo, right? I like to refer back to the famous ACE study. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. This was a giant study that took place in the 90s, and it showed that over half of the U.S. population has at least one ACE in their past before the age of 18 in the realms of neglect or abuse or household dysfunction. Recent research has shown that rates of ACEs in the healthcare professional population mirror the rates of ACEs in the general population. So this is not something that just belongs to patients. This belongs to our common shared human experience. Beautifully said. We've had more than one expert
1: on the podcast talk about the fact that medical education, the grueling nature of medical education, and sort of the, for lack of a better word, inhumanity often, and care for the well being of medical students actually has been known to impose trauma on <laughs> the medical professionals. Now, some say it's a lowercase T, not the capital T. There's all kinds of conversations we've had about that. But I think it's something that is just really important to normalize. Uh, I love Oprah's book from the last couple of years. Yes, Bruce Perry. It really helps normalize the fact that we all have had these experiences that essentially left a, an imprint, right, on both of our, our psyches and our nervous systems. And the good news is we're not broken, we're not scarred, we're not ruined, no matter what level anyone is on that trauma spectrum. The other news, and I won't say it's the bad news, is that at some point in order to heal from that, we sort of have to recognize that we have these things that can trigger
0: us or we get dysregulated and learning how to regulate through that. What that actually reminds me of is something that's really growing in an exciting way across medical education. There was an article published recently in the Journal of Academic Medicine about time trauma-informed medical education. And it's about both the content of learning about trauma and healing, as well as the context of how we actually learn in a safe space. And one example that comes to mind very fresh for me is I was in the course leader's office at Brown for our doctoring curriculum, and a medical student came in, wanted to speak with us privately, and said, I know we're going to be practicing blood pressure today. Is it okay if I keep my sleeve?" rolled down. There's something that I don't want my friends to see. And so even as we are in the medical education space, even as we are learning, we have the potential to be exposed to stress, to discomfort, to trauma, to re-traumatization. And it is our responsibility to make sure that our learners are in a place where they feel physically and psychologically safe and empowered.
1: And so would you say, Being physically and psychologically safe and empowered is the goal of what you have created in terms of the protocol for physicians performing trauma-informed examinations. And you like to talk about doctors also needing to understand where they are on the trauma spectrum. So it gives some universality and context to the fact that we all might be better if we thought about treating each other with a little more care.
0: Absolutely. And the core principles of this approach are that number one, healing happens in relationships. And importantly, these are safe, collaborative relationships. And so that's the point of whatever we construct in the trauma-informed curriculum or trauma-informed organization, the context is that we are doing this together.
1: So is it the kind of thing that you see moving forward physicians using with almost any patient whether or not they are aware ahead of time that there is, that that patient is likely to become dysregulated or have a trauma response to some of the things that happen in the course of a normal normal examination?
0: Yes. Outstanding question. The idea is that this is a universal precaution, just like hand-washing. We can make the assumption that everybody may be carrying something heavy in their invisible backpack of lived experiences. And we have the same approach to all comers. That means that I have the same approach in conversations with my colleagues in nursing or social worker pharmacy, also with the housekeeping staff, also with my boss, also with patients.
1: Do you mind giving us a few examples of what happens in an examination when you are employing these trauma-informed care in the way that you're performing a regular checkup?
0: Of course. So I'll give you an example of a physical exam maneuver that can be trauma-informed. So for generations, physicians have been taught to examine the thyroid by standing directly behind the patient with the fingers fully wrapped around the neck and the thumbs in the back. And so the patient can't see where you are, what you're doing. It also simulates strangulation. And so this can be unnerving at best. Why not stand instead at the patient's side within their peripheral vision have the fingers fully extended on the neck and let the patient know what you're about to do and why. If you feel like you're not able to gather accurate data that way, perhaps you can try an interior approach. The point is we need to pause and reflect on how our behaviors and language may be affecting the person in front of us. In terms of trauma-informed communication during the exam, I hear the phrase, for me, constantly, Throughout the healthcare profession, when we give instructions to patients, unfortunately, it can enhance the power differential that exists between the examiner and the patient and can even be sexually suggestive and inappropriate. For example, hop on the bed for me, take off your shirt for me, bend over for me, swallow for me. It's just not a necessary phrase, and so we can omit it altogether.
1: What do you hear if anything from patients did they notice anything different in the way that you perform the exams and their experience either that they report to you or that you notice in their demeanor and their experience what's been your observation as a professional
0: wonderful question i would say that i'm pretty good at establishing rapport with patients and i feel that i've been Thanked for my bedside manner. And all of that comes from honestly compassion and being eye to eye and heart to heart with the person in front of me. I do recall an instance where a patient of mine came in with a chief complaint of rectal bleeding. And I knew from being this person's healthcare professional and I knew from doing trauma screenings that he was an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I knew that I had to do a rectal exam. I didn't want to do a rectal exam, but he needed one. So I went through these principles and following my framework for a trauma-informed exam. And at the end, he said, you were very professional. Thank you. I'm glad that you're my doctor.
1: What's your wish, Sadie, based on what you have learned from this, the experience you have of teaching other physicians and medical professionals and everyone in healthcare about these ideas and the meaningful impact it can have on the people you serve. What's your hope long-term for what happens with trauma-informed care?
0: My hope is that this becomes the standard practice across medicine, period. I think that it is often about the nuts and bolts of how you do a specific maneuver in a room, but it is also about cultural transformation and how throughout an organization, we can really be kind to one another. This is not a novel thing. However, I do remember when the phrase patient-centered care was a new idea in medicine. And so we're continuing to evolve. It is a really uh, long journey. This work is never over. So we're just going to continue seeing this expand. And interestingly, and importantly, trauma-informed care is expanding. It's expanded to trauma-informed legal services, trauma-informed social work, for sure. There are entire public School systems that are becoming trauma informed. California, I believe, just scored a $4 billion grant to address ACEs in their state. And so this is being demanded by our current society's focus on equity and justice. And uh, it all just makes sense.
1: It really does. And I think one of the best things about it is it has us talking about it in public forums. So it starts to both demystify and take away some of the stigma around somebody being traumatized or who has PTSD. And it allows us to think in terms of that post-traumatic growth and ways that when we act, I think, more humanly toward each other, that's one of the ways that we are able to go from dysregulated to regulated, which regulating dysregulation is really how we heal from trauma. It's not, I mean, it's slightly more complicated
0: than that, but not all that much more complicated than that. And I think it's really important for us to have these conversations. It's kind of unfortunate uh, in terms of the stigma related to mental health that we do call it mental health. I remember hearing from one of my colleagues in the field of trauma that there's no organ called the mental This is your brain's health. It's an actual organ and it happens to be the most important organ in the body. And so this is very real. It's not made up. When people are presenting with symptoms of PTSD, they're not going bonkers. They're not crazy. This is very concrete. It's well-described. And fortunately, there are strategies for healing.
1: What can someone do if they're listening to this as a physician or healthcare professional and say, this all sounds great, but I don't know anything about it. So how am I supposed to learn how to do this correctly? Because I hear you, my perfectionist (laughs) physicians listening and healthcare professionals, do do I need to go study (laughs) for 20 years to get this uh, certification to do this? How would you guide people toward becoming more informed about trauma-informed care so they can incorporate it into their practice and life?
0: There are some very simple resources that I'd be happy to share with you. Additionally, my curriculum on a trauma-informed physical exam is available online. It was published in MedEd portal, which is a forum for publishing MedEd curricula for others to use and adapt for their needs. And I'd say that even if You're not going to spend time learning all of the specific skills. One thing that has helped me in the past, if I really don't know what to do next, is that I pause and I tap into a feeling of compassion and I know that whatever happens next is going to be okay. I do recall an instance of a pelvic exam with a veteran female patient who had absolutely consented to the exam. She definitely wanted to proceed with it. She knew that it was time for the pap smear. She's like, let's get it done. However, as I started to explain things and you know show her the materials and say, this is what we're going to do next. She was like, stop, shut up. I don't want to hear anything about that. I want you to get it done and get it done fast. And so in that instance, being trauma-informed did not mean being highly transparent and explaining everything and being highly communicative. It meant shutting up and doing my job quickly. And that's what the patient needed.
1: That reminds me of some of the work that's been done, putting um, character strengths and values in action and understanding that humility is one of the character strengths that makes us feel most connected to each other, makes other people feel like we are seeing and hearing them the most. And it's often when physicians do the via or values in action assessment, humility can be one of the lower ones on their um, more, more commonly used values in action. And when I asked Ryan Nemeck, who is a psychologist on the forefront of the positive psychology and movement, he's, I said, well, how does somebody get more humble speaking for myself as somebody who also has humility very low on my on the assessment? And he said, listening, it's the simplest way. It's just That's simply listening and being willing to take in new information, as opposed to constantly letting your own computer brain be assessing how you can be the one in charge or the expert or the one who knows everything. And that has changed my life. And I think it relates to what you just said.
0: That's totally, totally so real. And I try to implement that when I'm in the exam room. Granted, there are so many systems barriers that often get in the way, writing notes and competing interests. I do my best to type. The HPI as the patient is sharing, but I'm, my body is turned towards them and I'm making frequent eye contact. And a lot of our conversation in real time is about everything that they want to get off their chest. And it's at the end when we talk about labs and this is the to do list, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't blab on to them about the running dialogue in my own brain about the CBC and da, da, da. It's about FaceTime that is meaningful with the patient. Fantastic. We will direct you toward the show notes
1: because um, we have information on how you can learn more about trauma-informed physical examinations, learn more about the work that Dr. Sadie Alessio is doing with her VA colleagues to publish a framework for trauma-informed telehealth in addition to those in-person examinations. It's important work. And Sadie, I really appreciate you taking the time to so beautifully explain it and hopefully inspire others to learn more about this so they can incorporate it into their healthcare practices as well.
0: Thank you so much, Jill. It's an honor. I think it's important to recognize that trauma is probably far more prevalent than we have historically accepted it to be. And now is as good a time as ever to dive into these solutions.
1: Thanks again for being with us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you'll share this with your colleagues, with uh, medical students that you know, folks in residency, as well as those who have been practicing for a long time. I think it's an important conversation. We need to be having it more and more. Until next time, I'm co-host of Doc Working the Whole Physician podcast, Jill Farmer. Thanks so much for being here.
2: At Doc Working, we're here to help you maximize your potential on your own terms and help you live your best life. You told us what you need and want, and we built this for you. Whatever your journey is, you have options. You can choose to live the life you want to live. We see you, we get you, And now let's get you in the driver's seat of your own life so you can find purpose in your work and everything you do and every choice you make. Top executives, athletes, actors all achieve greatness with the support of professional coaches. As a healthcare professional, you deserve ongoing coaching support toward achieving your career goals and living your best life as you define it on your own terms. We have created this specifically for you with CME credit at docworking.com. Please go to docworking.com and check out our quick balance to burnout quiz to see where you are on the balance to burnout continuum right now. The results might surprise you. Taking this simple first step may change your life for the better. And until next time, Thank you for listening to Doc Working, The Whole Physician Podcast.